This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me. It's sponsored by Digital Media, which is a real company that actually distributes podcasts. Um, we got some questions about that. Today's sponsor is Videoblocks, a stock media company with clips everyone can afford. A Videoblocks subscription gets you unlimited daily downloads from a library of 115,000 HD video clips, After Effects templates, motion backgrounds, and cinemagraphs. On average, subscribers pay less than a dollar per download over the course of a year. Everything is 100% royalty-free. Cancel your subscription and keep what you download and maintain your rights forever. Get your yearly subscription today for only 99 bucks at videoblocks.com slash recode. I'm here with my guest, Rafat Ali, who is a two-time digital media entrepreneur. Welcome, Rafat. Thank you, Peter. Many of you know Rafat from paidcontent.org, and your new company is Skift. Am I pronouncing Skift correctly? Correct, yes. What does Skift mean? Uh, it's a old English word that means the first layer of snow on the ground. Nobody uses it I thought anymore. it was like a Finnish word or Norwegian It's also word. a Norwegian word for shift. So English and then Norwegian. So essentially, for all intents and purposes, uh, we own the word as it relates to travel. You took a word that most people don't, either isn't a word or, or most people don't know, and you said, this is going to be the name of my new travel site. Yeah, I bought the domain like five years before I started. So what is, Skif. what is skiff.com? What, what do I learn if I go to that site? So the business of travel, so airlines, airports, hotels, destinations, online travel, cruises, between all these subsectors is the world's largest industry by many accounts. Certainly the world's largest employer people. And there wasn't one source when we started to understand the business of travel in a big picture sense. There were obviously trades that have existed in various parts of travel for decades, years. Nothing that cut across all those sectors. This is a trade magazine, trade website, trade publication for people in the travel business. It's not for business travelers, right? You're not going to tell me how to upgrade my miles. No, we, we had plans for that initially. The idea was we create a B2B2C company, both sides. Once we become experts, once we become experts in the eye of the industry, then take that and translate it for the, for the business travelers. Certainly that was part of it. We just discarded it along the way as we realized what our focus needs to be as we build a company. A yeah, company. I wish you would give me some good business travel tips. Maybe you can, well, you, maybe you, you can give me yeah. some at the end. You've emailed time again. Yeah, I say, I say, I say if, I, if I know the guy who runs the travel site, I should ask. I, I want to know. You know well, unofficially, you always have the line open so you can keep emailing me or Jason. I, wanted, I went to Italy. I wanted help booking that. You really are not helping me a lot, Rafa. <laughs> so I want to talk to you a bit about, about that site and why you created it. And I want to talk to you about why you made paid content as well. Um, I've known you a long time. I think you were doing paid content, what, 2005? When did I start it? When, when did 2002. You, 2002. So, June two, so Gawker and I started the same month. Right. Okay, coincidentally. So I happen to have Elizabeth, uh, interviewed Elizabeth Spires here. It's, it's old home week at yeah. Recode Media. So it's, uh, they, what, they took the model, the blog model, took it in the consumer way. We took industry news way. So paid content, you can't really find it now, right? Does no, it, it's dead it, and it, gone. It got and bought and every, sold. And, I, I'm going to say it's... Six, seven thousand stories I wrote over a ten-year period, except for archive.org, it doesn't exist anywhere. So there is a percentage of people who are listening to this who would have seen this because they were in the media business for a while. If if you weren't reading that, if you didn't get it at the Times of the Journal, you were getting in from paid content. You were an early prototype of a, of a business blog, very influential. I don't want to talk about how you started that, but let's go even farther back. How did you launch that site? How did you get to the point where you wanted to launch a business site? Uh, well, certainly did not grow up thinking about going into business at all. You grew up where? Uh, I grew up in India. I was born in UK, grew up in Denver for the first six years, and then we moved back to India, and I grew up there from like six to 24. And you moved to the US then? 
And then from 24, I moved to U.S. to do my master's. And the plan was what? Uh, the plan after the master's yeah. was to come to New York and start covering the internet economy. You got a master's in journalism. Journalism. And you want to write about the internet in New York City. Yeah, I was doing it. So back when I was in India, in Delhi, I was, I was working for the equivalent of ad age in India, where I was covering internet advertising. Realized the action is in U.S. How do I get to U.S.? I said, I'm going to apply to the journalism schools. I got through Indiana. This is 1990. 99 is when I came here. So I was covering it in the peak of like 97, 98, obviously the peak days of the web 1.0 boom. India was also starting then. And uh, when I finished school from Indiana, I moved to New York, worked a couple of dot coms uh, for Silicon Alley Reporter, Jason Calacanis's previous company or first company i would i don't remember he was probably selling something out of back of a truck in bay ridge before something that, yeah. something when he was doing with sony and then actually before that i was at inside.com the the then famous and now nobody remembers uh media there was site. a period where everyone who was anybody either worked at inside.com or, or aspired to work at inside.com all gone now as all well. gone now i mean all they have a lot of famous well-accomplished people yeah so that was my two companies that i Two sites that I wrote for, both of them closed down eventually. So traditionally, the route is you go, you get your journalism degree from Indiana, and you go work for these sites. I assume at the bottom of the masthead, and then you work your way up either at those sites or you get to a bigger media company. Yeah, I applied for all. I mean, all of them. Wall Street Journal. Roger will tell you how many times I applied to Wall Street Journal, Street.com back in when it sort of was people knew the place you wanted to go and then cnet cnet was my dream job back then it really was jim who who i still remember used to break every freaking story about yahoo this was even probably before carol was breaking stories about yahoo so i really wanted to go to cnet and so applied to all of these did not get through because there was well i was not a citizen then and then i later became a yeah. citizen so there were some visa issues that, that i sorted along the way but I also came out at a bad time out of school. This was the web 1.0 implosion had already happened. So nobody was hiring. So when everybody was running away from digital media slash internet because everybody said, look, this was a, I don't know if they exactly said this was a fad, but. Right, because there was a period where everyone sort of said, the internet, what's that? And everyone said, oh, the internet's great. Let's hire everyone with a pulse. They'll all come work at our internet site. They'll become internet millionaires and that went. As you'd expect yeah, I was go. still in school then. So, in school, so you missed out on that boom. I missed out all of that. Yeah, timing-wise, uh, you know, I have some issues in life. But um, And so when I came out, it was that weird time between, uh, so the first dot-com bubble had burst and September 11th hadn't happened. So that weird one year in between where we felt like things were just getting a lot worse, it's going to get a lot worse. So that's when I came out and had issues in terms of applying to these companies. Nobody was hiring. Visa issues obviously were there. So I started a blog to say... I'd been blogging for a while. As soon as I came to US, I discovered blogs when I was at school and started personal blogging of like as a Indian guy into America, my learnings of what I'm learning as a as an immigrant or at least as a student. And so then I started aggregating news, media news as a way to show here's what I can do as a journalist please hire me. You, okay, so you were using it as sort of a work as a product, resume. right? Okay. And you had a very specific style, which was, hey, the New York Times wrote this, or the Wall Street Journal wrote this, and I think that's right, or I think it's wrong, or they're really missing the real story, and you would add little bits of, of commentary, and then I think more and more reporting as yeah, well. Yeah, right? yeah, it started initially because I was still employed full-time at Silicon Alley Reporter. I was doing it on the side. And 
Jason, to his credit, never discouraged me not to do it, even though obviously it was taking up my time. And initially I started carefully just commenting on what was happening just because I was reporting on the industry anyway. And then uh, then I started reporting on it when I lost my job. Then I just started reporting on the industry. Essentially, a phone and an internet connection was all I needed. So you lost your job, and then did you did the light go off? From and go, oh, New this- York, so I moved to London. London, I was still looking for jobs for uh-huh. the first four or five months. I was a British citizen. I was born in the UK, just never lived there. Nobody gave me a job again because economy was was pretty bad there as well. And so I almost got a job at Mining Magazine. <laughs> so like I went through many copy editing tests. I'm so glad I'm not an expert at like mining industry. And I just started the blog. And really while hunting a job, my distraction from hunting a job was to go in the internet cafe in East London and sit and, and just blog. type. Yeah. And when did you realize, oh, this is actually my job now? When somebody invited me to speak at a conference in Germany in this random spa town like outside Frankfurt. And they were giving me two and a half thousand euros, which for then for me was like, you know, shit, I can move out of my aunt's money. basement in London and actually get my own apartment. So this uh, is... They, they read your stuff on, it was then, on was content. it paidcontent.org? Yeah. .org, yeah, yeah. Worst they name were, ever, but this is a good lesson, right? If you, you can start something with a terrible name and still I succeed. I know, seriously. No, well, I mean, I've changed, yeah, my new company has different lessons yeah. on that front. But yeah, it was not meant to be a company at all. It just ended up being one... And once that came and then I started asking some f- friend, industry friends of mine who were running software companies to send me your banners. I'm going to put it on the site for free for like a month. As soon as I put it in the site in the newsletter and I had the foresight to understand the value of newsletter. I didn't have the foresight. I saw the value of newsletters at Silicon Alley Reporter. Daily touch point to your reader that Jason had done very well through his life mm-hmm. early on. And so that's what I started, a blog and the newsletter. People for a long time knew paid content as an email newsletter because yep. I used to essentially take all the copy of every story, put it in a newsletter. And so that worked. So over a couple of years, you turn this thing that wasn't a job into a job, and then it's... Enough it's- money such that I could live. I mean, I was you know, young and single and living in a crappy room share in East London. I could afford it. And and do you think you were good at what you did, or do you think you were the only one doing it, and by default you became the one who was the best at it, or both? Both, I think. I mean, in high, shit, what should I say about myself? I mean, both, in the sense that you know, I guess I became. Now I'm reading some of the old stories, yeah. and realized how naive, or how overconfident I was about everything I thought I knew. Well, it helps not to know anything, right? Yeah. So I think that that helped tons. Naive about. Calling names to people, not calling names, but like being opinionated about companies is, you know, at 28, two years into your writing career, you shouldn't be that opinionated. Turns out by being on the blog, with my own complete freedom, I was able to, you know, learn that. And from the outside, I mean, eventually you start building up a staff. And from the outside, it seemed to me like you had figured out this thing, whether you intentionally did it or not, where you were writing for a relatively small community of people and you were the only one doing it, so they all read you. Yeah. They were giving you tips. Yeah. And you gave this awesome feedback loop where you'd yeah. read Rafa, you'd send Rafa. And it was not, the, the community was not online. Community was all offline. Email, phone, and then eventually conferences as well. So when the world was talking about, oh, comments on blogs and trackbacks, mm-hmm. remember, I'm sure you remember, 
none of that was happening in paid content because it was an industry audience that had, did not have time to like go into comments and discuss. And again, because you're writing about media, other high-profile media people are reading about yeah. you, talking about you. I remember going to an event where you had Arthur Salzberger Yeah, that was uh, the first speaking. New York event. New York Times wrote it. David Carr wrote yeah. an article and, about it. And I think, I think one of the benefits about being in that business is you get to sort of punch above your weight sort of influence-wise, right? Yeah. I mean, media, writing on media, you know this very well. Yeah. Don't, don't <laughs> tell people my secret, Rafa. And then at some point, you, you take on some venture money as well? Yeah, so Alan Patrickoff, who... Uh, had just exited his previous private equity firm, Ipex Ventures, uh, started a fund, and we were his first investment, second exit. Were you looking for money? No. I just literally, it's a story where I was in LA, sitting on my desk writing. The phone rings and says, I'm calling from Alan Patrickoff's office. I said, oh, that's Silicon Alley 1.0 days. I remember Alan. Sure, I'm going to take the call. And I talked to him, and he said, are you coming to New York? I said, well, I'm coming to speak at a conference next week. Let's meet. And that's how the investment happened. We raised a comically low half million Series A, which, you know, who does that anymore? Um, At the time, it seemed like a lot of money. We were reading about it. Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, I don't think we ever disclosed, the, it was like less than a million. People kept saying less than a million. It was half a million. Uh-huh. And it was delayed six months because I didn't have any balance sheet or anything. Uh, my CFO, who's, still my, who's now my CFO at my company now, Michael Kniff, he remembers, he, he tells the story to everyone. He came to my apartment in L.A. He asked me, where's my stuff? He's, I said, here, this is the shoebox here, take it. <laughs> and he literally had to create a balance sheet that then led to the investment because obviously they had to have all the stuff and taxes and everything. So you, you raise money from Alan Patrickoff. You're right place, right time. You, you're working your ass off. And then the moral of the story is you make a gazillion dollars in life. Uh, happily, yes. live life happily yeah many happily. there are many lessons but also do not sign a incentive based exit but that's a whole different conversation we can have we should um, have that conversation sometime <laughs> I'm trying to get people to talk candidly about what happens when you sell your company and what it's what like happens to, when to you sell your company is a switch goes off and I'll tell this to every entrepreneur who I met, meet there's going to be a switch that's going to go off in your head you cannot control it the only thing will happen is you don't know when it's going to happen when it's going to happen, it's over. And so the Henry Blodgett... The switch that made you build that business. The, yes. the engine that makes you build that business yeah. will go off. Yeah, Henry Blodgett, who's tied up for 10 years, at some point during the between zero year and 10 year, that switch is going to go off and he's going to leave. Turns out Ariana Huffington has not yet had that switch turn off. She's so still, she's still it just turns stuff. off. Or See, maybe it has. Speaking of successful businesses, we need to talk about some right now because there are advertisers. Hang on one second. Today's show is brought to you by Videoblocks, a stock media company that everyone can afford. With the Videoblocks subscription, you get unlimited daily downloads from a library of 115,000 HD video clips, After Effects templates, motion backgrounds, and cinemagraphs. On average, subscribers pay less than a dollar per download over the course of a year. It's the same stuff you'd find on more expensive sites, just way cheaper. Videoblocks is always adding new content, so it stays fresh. And as a subscriber, you get everything 100% royalty-free, even if you cancel your subscription. Yep, you heard that right. Whether you're working on personal or commercial projects, you pay zero royalties and keep what you download forever. Videoblocks is offering my listeners a one-year subscription for $99. That's 50 bucks off the usual price tag for my listeners only, less than 10 bucks a month. You can get your subscription today for only 99 bucks at videoblocks.com slash recode. That's V-I-D-E-O-B-L-O-C-K-S dot com slash recode for this exclusive offer. 
Today's show is also brought to you by Mack Weldon. They make the most comfortable hoodies, sweatpants, underwear, and socks that you will ever wear. I am wearing them right now. Rafa can attest to that. What do you think, Rafa? They look very cool. I need to buy some. I need to buy shoes before that. It sounds like I'm making Rafa saying that, but it's not true. You do not have to endorse the socks no, if you come on. But I do need to buy shoes and socks. You should buy some shoes and socks. You're not wearing any socks right now. No, I'm wearing sandals. I'm glad it's casual. Speaking of casual, Mac Walden is the kind of thing you can wear to any event. You can wear them to work, wear them to work out. You can wear them to podcasts like we are doing right now. They're easy to buy. You go to MacWeldon.com. You get 20% off your order with the promo code RECODE. Profit. What promo code will you use when you order your Mac Walton socks? Great code. Very good. You get your money back. If for some reason you don't like what you ordered, you get to keep it. It's amazing. You get 20% off. That's good for you and for me at MacWeldon.com. Use the promo code RECODE. That's MacWeldon.com. Promo code RECODE. All right. Good Good job well, on the sock sale, Rafa. Yeah, good. Um, we tried to work together years ago, or we talked about working together. Years yeah. Ago. So now a lot here of we people, are selling socks. I know, seriously. A lot of people I talked to along the way, I realized, oh, wait, Nicholas Carlson. We did talk to him when when he said, oh, I have an offer from Silicon Alley Insider. I said, if you're going to play us on the offer, go work for Silicon Alley Insider. It was great for him. So you, you were, um, I mean, it's cool that we get to do this because you were very influential for me. Um, I was reading you when I was writing about media over at Forbes, and you were, again, were the, really the only one doing it online. It was a big deal to me that you'd created your own business. That was pretty influential. And even when I went to go work with Henry Blodgett, who we were just talking about, and Dan Fromer, and I think the original idea was to create a paid content style yeah, that's what blog. Ken Ryan said somewhere that right. initially we wanted Just to not about media and more geographic and, and style-wise. It was very much like, this is what was in the New York Times. This is what was in the Wall Street Journal. This story is wrong. Also, we have our own reporting. But it was very influenced by what you had done and that style of sort of commenting on what people had created. You get to take credit for generating a style of reporting and commentating. I think industry, business reporting, which is bringing some human language into the business reporting. The fluency of, of the blogs into business reporting, I think that's probably the only thing I can claim to have brought it's to some cool. extent. You built a thing, and you sold it to The Guardian, um, and you were alluding to this when we were talking. I think that didn't work out as well as either side wanted, which is a pretty common yeah, result. Yeah, pretty common occurrence. Obviously, I knew that because I was reporting on the industry, on M&A. M&A was our bread and butter. I used to break tons of stories back in the days. We used to compete on a bunch of stuff, too. Thought we were going to be an exception. If everyone knows that M&A generally doesn't work, especially this kind of media M&A we're talking about, um, why do people keep doing it? The, the money's great. Everybody makes money except for the well, buyer. The, 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 why is the buyer doing it? The buyer is theoretically not a dumb person, not a dumb company. Some of them are dumb, but, but many of them are accomplished, smart people. Why do they think the acquisition they're going to make is going to work out? Uh, well, I mean, so... They're hedging bets. I think smart M&A people know that they have. To, it's not unlike VC. You buy a portfolio company. Some work, some don't. And so in media's case, it's obviously larger than just a corp dev person or the team. It's, it comes from hopefully from the top. And some sometimes they're buying innovation. Sometimes they're buying product. I mean, you know, this is in media, it's particularly difficult. Let's talk about media. Particularly difficult because media isn't rocket science. Media is sensibility or brand or a lot more amorphous things that you're buying. So in most cases, cultures don't work or we're, we're too small for it to work, which is the case with us. We were too small and we're too far. We're not when even you, the headquarters. When you had paid content and got bought by Guardian. Yes. And Guardian had you know giant company back then, even now still very large. 
they had big plans in the U.S. This was like the third try trying to break America. They failed the first two times. They failed with us as well. And to their credit, obviously, they took the chance and, and did it. We were raising money at that point. Had we taken the venture funding, we would have been dead probably earlier than that just because the, the market was brutal. A meta media company in 2008, 2009 had no business. This being is one in of the existence. problems of writing about media, is as influential as it may be. Nobody limited wants, audience. Yeah, nobody. Nobody spends money. I mean, media businesses are hard. Meta media businesses making money is terrible. Shh. It's a <laughs> so, meta media podcast you're talking uh, about. But so you know that's what happened. They were laying off hundreds of people back home. We went from like 30 people to 11. We were cut to bone. Editorial was still pretty strong, but by that time, your previous company had come in, was yeah. doing well. The previous incarnation of this company, All Things D, was doing well. So there's a lot of competition, and everybody was covering media. So And like New York Times, Wall Street Journal were also very serious about covering the business and media. So it was very noisy. And I'm so glad not to be covering media today. So you did a year, two years at The Guardian? And so two-year lockup. I was a year into it, Guardian tried to sell us. Actually, Guardian, my immediate bosses tried to sell us, but the Guardian CEO, who's now the CEO of EasyJet, Carolyn McCall, she vetoed it. She says, no, I read paid content every day, get value out of it. Why haven't you guys figured out what to do uh -huh. with it? So they killed it. They, they killed the plan to sell. At that moment, I knew nothing was going to happen. So I left like four months before my lockup period. There was an earnout involved that didn't happen. So you leave. And you think, all right, I'm done. I remember talking to you about this. You said, what I'm not going to do is create another I know. B2B I industry know. I was done with it. Yeah. And here we I, are. I think that lesson, B2B yeah, lesson in life is don't run away from, from what you know. Uh, but I had to take a journey to come back and learn the part that don't run away it from just what you know. Just spell it out. Why didn't you want to do the thing that you'd proven you were good at? Because from the outside, it seemed like, oh, you did that with media. Because do it with something, do it with something else. Here's why. There was a bit of a chip on my shoulder that people said, oh, this was a fluke. Prove yourself in a larger consumer thing. And so I said, okay, that's what I'm going to do. And even to some extent with Skiff, that was initially what I was trying to do. To prove yourself. To prove that I could do a larger, like a consumer thing. Right. So it's not just enough to say, that wasn't a fluke, I'm going to do it again. It was, that wasn't a fluke, I'm going to do it better and bigger. And bigger. Certainly Skift is already bigger than paid content was in terms of revenue, in terms of audiences probably, but we are a business information company that talks about the business travel in human language so people like you can understand, but it's not meant, I'm not trying to make money out of you. So your initial ambition was, so you go through a bunch of, of ideas and you end up at travel and you say, I, yeah, I like Yeah, I almost travel. went in um, sports, the business of sports. Uh -huh. Uh, because the ESP, ESPN did not exist. No, I'm joking. And no, the business of sports. I thought Sports Business Daily, whatever it was called, uh, was too old school. I could create something in the business of sports. Uh -huh. I talked to Bankoff. And he said, Jim Bankoff. Yeah. My boss. Yeah, this was before. My boss's boss. Uh, yes. So he said, it's a great idea. Let me introduce you to some people. He introduced me to some people. Turns out I have no interest in sports. So that was an <laughs> issue. I do like Olympics. But other than that, I don't know anything about American sports. So that wouldn't have helped. And uh, I did go on the business of education. I looked at quite seriously, then realized uh, very local education is local. It's going to be hard to yeah. do like an over like an, a global play, whatever international play. And so I did not do that. Also, I did not have tons of interest in education. I didn't have a kid yet, so travel is what I ended up with. So you get to travel. You say I travel a lot. I have an affinity for that. I started learning about the business of travel by reading the trades. 
And, and this, and you said this is not just going to be a trade because we're also going to have, have a consumer part of yeah. it. Yeah, I was and inspired we're gonna have by a data product. And it's yeah, scale like political. Up. I said political has like a consumer so audience. Are these things that you wanted to do, or are these things that you thought that VCs or other people wanted you to do? Probably a mix of both. Now, in hindsight, like I was influenced by here's how I can raise money for it. I've written about it. I've been pretty open about it. So certainly in the last year, I've been open about it. VCs wanted to hear a lot of things. Data was one of them. Because again, if you, if you say, I'm going to create a B2B business publication, they go, that sounds good, but that doesn't scale. Yeah. I, have store, I mean, I, I, it's amazing. The VCs that said all kinds of sh- things to me when they passed on me are now saying the exact opposite things today while funding other media companies. They're flexible. Uh, so it's amazing. I also tweet about it quite a bit, yeah. on and off. And so, Wait, can yeah. Can I ask about the tweeting? <laughs> I'm certainly very vocal on you Twitter. Are, I have to confess, I've, I have muted you. That's fine. But I, I do wonder why you spend the time that you do on Twitter. I know it's an addiction. I will want to is get it an addiction? It public about it. Yeah. Uh, because it occurs to me the most obvious reason would be, oh, this is a way for you to either psych yourself up or psych your team up and you make public pronouncements and you, you kind of paint yourself in a corner and you have to fight your way out of the corner and maybe that's an intentional technique. Yeah, no, it's a mix of, obviously all my team reads Gift. They're going to listen to this podcast as well. Yeah. So it's a big part of the culture. I think the underdog fighting its way. Yeah, is, you, you're is often saying of we're 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 built. A lot of your tweets and your essays as well are about we're a small company. We're doing it differently. All of you big companies are wrong. You VCs are wrong. We're going to show you that you're wrong. Doom is coming for you, motherfuckers. I don't think you say motherfuckers. No, I've never did. said that. And there's a lot of and I get it. You yeah, can sort I'm contrary. I think up, that right? it be people do say Rafa, you're contrarian. I don't know what that means. I just know that the way I want to do things is different. Uh-huh. My whole life has been about if people land in a place and, and drive to the right, I want to drive to the left. I don't know why, but that's just how I was it's built. It's worked out for you so uh, far. It's worked out. And so it's literally all my travels are people land in a city, they drive to the right, I take a car and drive to the left. That's that's my life. And so it's worked out. I do think that there's obviously lots of follies of media in general are their own doing. That's, I think, a common thread. Uh-huh. And that too many incompetent people run tons of media companies in this world. And now you can say that with authority because you've been through the, the yeah. wars and the and now and You're not a 28-year-old guy, doesn't it? No. And so I think that what professional blogging gave me was a voice to write about the industry. What Twitter gave me, even though I was late compared to some of the uh-huh. early media people adopting Twitter, was sort of finding a voice of my own in the larger world, in my place in the world. And I bring that to the company. It's an integral part of the company. If you were following my Twitter, you would see that tons of it, like the amount of time I spend on creating the right culture for the company is probably like 60, 70% of my time. It's just inordinate amount of time. And part of it is also the us against the machine to some extent. Some of it is... Um, just the regretful tweeting that everyone or many people do on Twitter. Oh, I should not type that. No, I, no, I mean, uh, in general, not really. But no. I've certainly pissed off some of my investors in some of the tweeting I've done. Because you've tweeted about them? No. No. No, never. But dumb. in general about yeah. the venture world yeah. that I've talked about quite a bit. And they come back to you and say, could you cool it? Uh, they have said, oh, I wish you could not say that. <laughs> but you, and, and you say you wish you could do that too, but you keep doing it. It's an addiction. In general, I would like to figure out a way yeah. to get rid of Twitter in my life, but it's also a big part of our success. 
in the sense that the amplification that Twitter provides in the larger media space is unparalleled. We would not have been where we are today as a company skiffed, skiffs, I hate this word, but I'm going to say it, momentum in general that has translated into business for us would not have happened if had, had Twitter not existed. Because what? Because, as because it, uh, it's famously too small to be a real media business, right? So how are you using it to boost to, your business? Uh, well, uh, purely on an editorial basis, amplification. A lot of the times when our stories get picked up, it's not because people, media people are following Skiff, it's because they're following me on Twitter. So bigger stories that we break that then translate into larger stories from different media organizations and stuff. So our amplification beyond the industry, which it has to a, a large extent, is only possible not because of Facebook or Snapchat or Instagram that everybody else worries about. It's not your audience. It's not our audience. LinkedIn, not even that. doesn't have that inbuilt amplification built-in that Twitter has. So I think that's why I love and hate it, because mm-hmm. hate because it just takes so much of my time. I also have a kid now in the last year and a half, so he actually does not like when I hold up the phone. So I've learned Smart to kid. not have it in front of him. So... Twitter didn't exist uh, when you built your first business. What, um, and we talked a bit about how you sort of initially wanted to sort of build something that wasn't like your first business and you have. What lessons did you bring from paid content that are working for you? I think Skiff? the tone and voice in terms of the uh, having an opinion about what you're writing about and an opinion based in re- an actual reporting, not like some of the other unnamed media reporters that happens tons without actual reporting. But us having confidence in our voice because we report on the industry so extensively. I think that was a thing that we brought with paid content. So we know about this topic. We don't have a neutral view on it. We're going to express that view. We're yeah. going to tell you why we Tons think of that. It. Our view of travel and the world is a very progressive view of, of the world. Like progressive in the real sense of progressive. Uh, eclectic, global, diverse, intermingled, globalization. We're all for it. It's part of our DNA. Something that should be good for you is the fact that Airbnb is a giant company. It didn't really exist when you were starting this thing up, or maybe it had just sort of started. No, it had started, but it was but not certainly not Enormous big. effects, and you can be sort of the dominant chronicler of that. Of, of Airbnb that and the larger, what it begets in the right. larger sense. And all, you know, what it does to the hotel industry, what it does yeah, to travel. tons of it. And so when people talk about us, and I, I wince when people say that, people in the travel industry, they say you are a disruptor, which I just wince at because one, it's just so much laden with so much meaning. Yeah. But they're saying it because we are chronicling the changes that are happening, both in terms of traveler behavior as well as the companies that are disrupting. How, um, and since there really aren't a lot of dedicated Airbnb reporters, so you guys sort of qualify as the one. What's your relationship like with that company? Uh, uh, very complicated. Brian Chesky for a long time thought that we were out to get him. It's the CEO of Airbnb. Yeah, yeah. It took a while for us to build that relationship back, both editorially as well as, I guess, editorially. And then our business side, which is, I'm not involved in editorial, that's run by my co-founder, Jason Clampett, who is the head of uh, content and also the editor-in-chief. So I, we, we have talked business with Airbnb. Nothing has happened yet, but... It's a complicated relationship because of our history with Airbnb. Silicon Valley companies in general, you know this very well, have a very thin skin about anybody asking them the hard question. This is a playbook that you and I have seen with every hot internet company for the last 15 years. It's a playbook that's playing out with Airbnb, probably with Snapchat. I don't, I don't cover, but you guys can tell. So I think it's a complicated relationship. 
they understand our place in the industry. We define the battle of Airbnb versus cities by looking at New York City, the famous story that we did that put us on the map. Which, which was? Which was New York City as a mirror to the larger issues with Airbnb. And we did a very deep dive. We did a data dive of New York City listings. We were the ones that put out that 75% of the listings are legal. This, this is the whole push and pull about what Airbnb does to the real estate world, to the hotel world. To the neighborhoods, to regulation, et cetera, et cetera. So um, the New York State tried to subpoena us to get our data. And we said, we're a neutral party. We don't, we're not going to get involved. They subpoenaed somebody else. And so, yeah, that's why it's a complicated relationship. So how, how do you grow this business? Um, it, it is an industry trade. At some point, you say, all right, we're gonna, we've nailed travel, and now we're going to do the standard thing, which is create yeah. other verticals. Yeah, so we are, um, when I was talking to VCs, the plan was to take the SCIF model and 10 different verticals. We're not going to do that. What we're going to do is what's the next adjacent vertical to travel? It's food and beverage, so FNB. So where we are, I haven't really hidden it. But we are going to launch something in the food, food and beverage world. So essentially restaurant eating out world, which is, as you can imagine, very intertwined with travel. So that's our next step. Uh, it's going to launch October, November timeframe. It's going to be part of Skift. Okay. But, sure. but it's if I want to learn about, um, I mean, I work Restaurant a- tech, not food tech, which is a larger world, right. but innovations in restaurants, technology, guest experience, all the stuff that we in a parallel way, cover and travel, we're going to cover in FNB. So Vox Media, where I work, run by Jim Bankoff, who's worked with you, one of their verticals is Eater. And yeah. Eater used to be a sort of, in some ways, a trade, right? It talked about what was opening and closing and which chef was doing what. And over time, they've sort of moved away from that and become much broader and bigger intentionally. When you see someone doing that and you're about to go and create a digital trade for the food and restaurant business, do you go, oh, maybe there's a lesson I could learn from that? Or do you go, oh, they've, they've left an opportunity for me? You're giving me too much credit of having thought it through. No. Yeah. Uh, we have seen this. We, I've liked the sector for a long time. I think sensibility of Eater and Vox and others, the larger sensibility design, how they talk to uh, sort of a crossover audience for a long time yeah. in a lot of their sites. I think that's kind of what we learned. I mean, that's the one thing I learned from Vox very well and the gadget blog before that. But no, so, I don't know. So small is good for you. And then back to, I do want to go back to the big versus small because this, yes. this is the subject of sort of one of your rants, right? It is one of my or favorite things favorite to talk things about. Favorite things to talk about is, is your argument, if I'm summing it up correctly, is you shouldn't take money just to take money and you shouldn't grow just to grow. And, you sh- and when it comes to media businesses, you shouldn't make big media properties just They're, to make big media properties. Am I fairly... Summing it up? Yes. Okay. My argument is there's another way to build a company, and it doesn't all have to be about the worship of bigness. I think that's... Small is beautiful. Small is beautiful. Uh, Small Small business is is great. We are proud to be called a boutique media company. We embrace it in every... But it's not like two years ago I was there. I'm there now. And so it took me a while to come up to this place where... Small is great. We don't need to raise more money. We're unlikely to raise more money. We may at some point in the growth equity phase, at some point, I just think that the, the, all the larger troubles that media is in today is, is chasing the next best thing. And, you know, you and I wrote about this tons of times in the past. You're four years into it? Four years. We you just have- celebrated our anniversary. We were in Cuba for our retreat. You have how many employees? 
29 and four open positions, so like 33 will be soon. You have 29 employees, you're making enough money to take them to Cuba. Are you profitable? Yes, we're profitable. We're profitable last year. We're going to be profitable this year. You had a profitable self-funding media business. Yeah, we have the most amount of cash we've ever had in our bank account as of this month. And now you're going to spend it all expanding <laughs> your next vertical. <laughs> no. no, but I look, I don't understand tons of finance. The only thing I understand is cash flow. And turns out uh, most of the old school business people you talk to will tell you the same thing. And so if I'm old school in that, that's great. It's cool to be at this age where you can be a sage. You can uh, be offering I, I sage know, advice, shit. right? I don't know anything about anything. I just pretend to. I'm kidding. No, that was, that's where you started as a 28-year-old not knowing anything. And now you're a 40-something? 40 42, yeah. Yeah. What I really wanted Rafat to do for me for years is is provide awesome travel tips because he knows the, the industry back and forth. Like, I've thought for years that if you're going to book a trip for business, you book in the morning because that way you don't get flight delays. Is that correct? I'll tell you, f- this is what my pe- my editorial tells me because I'm yeah. not the actual person writing it. But gaming the system, there's no way to game the system. You're up against a giant machinery that changes their ticket prices in milliseconds. What your travel tip is? There are no travel tips. There are is hacking me. is not worth the time it takes. This is certainly true for leisure travelers, like you and I going on a family trip. Uh, there's no way to game the system. It's just it's just not worth it if it costs you another fifty dollars extra to buy a room or a flight. Do it. It will save you three hours of of saving fifty dollars. So trying to hack the system is a is a loser's game. That's, no, that's my our audience lives to hack the system. They're hacking their bodies. They're trying to figure <laughs> out a growth hacking. There's got to be ways to. And also, you know, loyalty is a pretty much a scam for most of the most of the brands. Don't at get this the point. credit cards. Don't credit the, cards is the only way at this point. But like actual company loyalty, like you know, airline loyalty, hotel loyalty, at this point is pretty much moot, unless you are a very very high mileage traveler. Uh, which at this point, you know, unless you're not, none of it will make any sense. Carry on or don't carry on? Pack a bag. So I'm of bag. the school. So this is me personally. Yeah. I always check in. You uh, like hanging out the luggage carousel? I just, I think that I don't like the feeling of being rushed. And sure, I have to pay for it, but might as well. And just get it off mine so that I can be more free while traveling, especially at the airports and stuff. So Rapid's travel tips after four years of experience are don't game the system and check a bag. Yeah, I, I told you. I'm always, when people go right, I always go left, right? So that's, that was my tip. Rafa, yeah. thanks for coming. All I'm right, thank you. Looking forward to this for a while. I'm glad we got to do it. All right, thank you. If you guys like listening to me talk to Rafa as much as I like talking to Rafa, then you should go get more of this stuff. You can find us on iTunes, Google Play, anywhere fine podcasts are distributed. It's great if you subscribe. It's also great if you give us a review. Uh, while you're there, you can check out other fine Recode podcasts like Kara Swisher's Recode Decode and Lauren Good's Too Embarrassed to Ask. Thanks to our sponsors, Videoblocks and Mac Weldon. And also thanks to Digital Media, which is a real company that distribute podcasts for a living. This is Recode Media. I'm back next week with another awesome guest. See you then.